So when I was 16, I distinctly remember the day I got my driver's license, as many of you probably do. On one hand, it's just, you know, a life momentous occasion. It's a big deal. But I also remember, and I remember the dates. I don't really know why I remember the dates, but it was on August 1st. Uh, part of the reason I remember it is because I was going into my junior year of high school, and on August 2nd, that was when they were you could go to the school and get your parking pass for the year. So junior and senior year, you can drive to school. The problem is I went to a really big school, so if you were a senior, you were guaranteed a parking spot, and if you were a junior, you had a, still, you had a pretty good chance of getting one, but you had to sign up the day that they you know, became available. Um, and you also had to have your license then. So it doesn't matter if you're going to get your license later or whatever. If you didn't have your license on that day, you couldn't sign up. And so August 1st is the day, the, the earliest I'm allowed to like get my full driver's license. And so we go and we're standing in line in the DMV. And I wasn't that nervous. I was like, I mean, it's, you know, I should, this should be fine. I've been driving for, you know, a year. I know what I'm doing. And so we're there. And uh, there was this girl that was also in my high school. She was also going into her junior year that was in front of me. And, you know, the DMV takes forever. So we're in line and she goes and she takes her driver's test. Uh, we're still in line when she comes back, but when she walks back in, she is just like bawling. And I was like, mm, that stinks. I know what that means, right? And so we could kind of hear what was going on. She, ha- she failed the driving portion. Now, I don't know what, if it's changed you know, since then, but when I did it, if you failed the driver's portion, you had to wait a week before you could take it, take it again, which means no parking pass for her. And I remember I did hear one of the things the guy said is she went 30 in a 25 in the school zone. So I was like, oh, got it. 26, don't do it. 25, but you can't go too slow, right? So I'm doing this thing and I come back in and we come back in and uh, we sit at the table. My mom comes behind us and this guy's like talking and we're like, we don't care. Just did I pass or not? I don't care what you're saying, whatever. And so my mom actually asked him, like, did he pass? And he goes, well, let me tell you what he didn't do right first. And I was like, ugh. So the first thing I did wrong was when I was backing up, like doing a three-point turn or whatever, as I put on my brakes, I turned my head forward before I completely stopped. So that's, you know, that's legit. Although now we have backup cameras, so you don't turn your head at all. Uh, So that happens. And then the second thing I didn't do, which I didn't know was a thing, and I Googled it this week, and I couldn't find that it's a thing. But he was like, you didn't completely stop before you crossed over the railroad track. I was like... That's, I, I didn't say anything, obviously, because I'm trying to, I'm like, what? I was like, if I stop before going over a railroad track, that would cause an accident. Like, that is not something we do. And he was like, so you need to stop because North Carolina has the most vehicular deaths by trains in all of the country or something like that. And I'm like, no, no, no I'm not stopping. But then I passed. So it was all good, right? And I share that story because I was in a situation, maybe you've been in a situation in your life as well, where you were coming up on something, a test, something that you had coming up that you had to pass, you had to get through to get to that next thing. Or what, what, what did you have to do in order to, you know, get a passing grade, if you will, for lack of a better word. And today, as we continue our study through the book of Mark and the gospel of Mark, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. And Jesus is with his disciples, and he's going to tell them what it actually takes or, or rather, what it actually looks like to live a life of freedom and grace. And are they willing to do what is necessary to experience it? And so we'll be in Mark chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 42 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. If you don't have one, you can read one of those black ones. And if you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Uh, to set this up really quick, I want to read verses 38 through 41, which we read last week, just because it's referenced in this text. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining it. But just to set it up again, Jesus is with his disciples. At this point, he is making his way back towards Jerusalem, or towards Jerusalem, rather, uh, where he's going to give up his life. And last week, he talked about his, to his disciples. Uh, he told them that for the second time that he was going to die. They don't fully understand it. Then they have an argument about who is the greatest. And if you were here,
here last week, you remember we talked about, Jesus said, great in the kingdom of God is not about what you accomplish, but about how you love and serve other people. Then it says this in verse 38, and then we'll keep going. It says, John said to him, so one of Jesus' disciples said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, uh, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And then verse 41, and whoever is not, or, and whoever uh, gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Again, the point there is that there was a guy who wasn't a part of the disciples. And so Jesus, uh, John's problem with it is not that he wasn't necessarily following Jesus, but he wasn't like part of the in-group. And Jesus challenges him by saying, uh, don't rebuke this man, because anyone who does anything in the name of Jesus cannot later uh, speak ill of Jesus. And then he closes again, verse 41, which was the point of last week, that even the smallest thing that you and I might do for someone else is a big deal in God's kingdom. And then he says this in verse 42, and what we're going to read today is a challenging uh, teaching from Jesus. This is not the hippie, decaf-drinking, sheep-holding Jesus that we're going to read this morning. This is the true Jesus, and it says this. Jesus says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So what Jesus is doing here is he, it's connected to the previous passage, and he's giving us some, contra, some contrast. So these little ones that he's talking about here are disciples and are followers of Jesus. And so whether what you do is good, so in verse 41, even giving someone a cold cup of water, or bad, as he's talking about in verse 42, how you and I treat other followers of Jesus is just like how you and I might treat Jesus himself. And in this passage and in the previous passages, or the previous passage, uh, the disciples wanted to rebuke someone who wasn't with them. Of course, the irony is it's not about being part of the disciples in crowd. It's about following Jesus. And so Jesus warns them, and it's a warning for us, not to discredit someone just because they're not in your circle. Now, in our purposes for today, it could be, in modern day, it could be they don't go to our church, they go to a different church, or they're part of a different Christian tradition, whatever it might be. Of course, we want to honor and follow Jesus as best we know how, but just because it might look different than you, it doesn't therefore automatically mean it is wrong. And then ultimately, Jesus' hard words here is that leading someone away from Christ, however it happens, is a horrific thing, and it is better to die than to do that. Now, if, this, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're concerned, have I done anything to lead someone away, uh, astray from Christ? I think it's worth pointing out here that Jesus is likely talking about intentional living, as we're going to see, that is far from God. This is not when we wrong someone or we apologize or we repent. Of course, none of us are perfect, but he's talking about living a life that is going to lead others away because you are not intentional in how you live. Maybe put another way, this is also, I think, as a side note, a good reminder for us in our very individualistic culture when it's about us more than it's about the community that we might live in, that your relationship with God and how you follow Jesus is not just between you and him. Or put another way, as we say, if you've been through the partnership process here at New City Church, that we are saved personally, not privately. 
What this means is, yes, your faith in Christ, nobody can do it for you. It is a personal decision to submit yourself to him and what he has done and his lordship in your life. But it is never meant to be something that is just uh, acted out or lived out between you and him with no implications for other people. How we live matters in the good and in the bad. And what often happens is we read things in scripture, uh, talking about loving and forgiving and caring for one another. And we say, this is great. We should do this. But unless we commit ourselves to a community where we can live it out, it sounds really good in theory, but we don't ever actually have to do it. It sounds great to be someone that has to forgive someone until you actually have to do it. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, there, are what, there are 100, sorry, there are 100, one another, I don't know why I couldn't say that, uh, phrases that are derived from the Greek word alelon in the New Testament, and it pretty much means one another or mutually or reciprocally, something you do for someone else, uh, occurs 100 times. And 59 of those times are specific commands teaching us how to and how not to uh, relate to one another. I'm just going to read some of them really quick. In John 13, it says, love one another. It actually says that 16 times in the New Testament. Romans 12, it says, be devoted to one another. It says, honor one another above yourselves. It says, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14 says, build one another up. Uh, And Romans 15 says, be like-minded towards one another and accept one another and admonish one another. In Colossians 3, it says, greet one another. First Corinthians, it says, care for one another. Galatians, it says, serve one another. It says, bear one another's burdens. It says, forgive one another. In Ephesians, it says, be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Uh, speak, uh, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to build each other up. Submit to one another. You could go on and on. There is a lot of things here, and the point is that while our relationship, our, our decision to follow Jesus is a personal one, it is not a private one. It has implications for everybody around us. And then Jesus goes on and says this in verse 43. And he says, and if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. 47, and if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This, my friends, is not a passage you will ever hear read on (laughs) K-Love. You're like, what's K-Love? It's a Christian radio station. Just don't worry about it, right? Now, what's, what's going on here? Well, what's happening here is that Jesus, in this challenging saying, is he is shifting from endangering others to now he's going to talk about endangering one's self. Now, I'm going to submit this to you, and I'll explain it here in a second. Um, This is not something that Jesus is telling people to literally go and do. Um, He is using hyperbole, but this is not like he literally is telling people to cut off their hands, to gouge their eyes out, to cut off their feet. And and here's why we know this. Uh, We know because, again, Jesus was highly steeped in the Hebrew Bible. He believed it. He was the fulfillment of that, as we talked about so often in this series in the book of Mark. And in the Hebrew Bible, with the exception of circumcision, which was the sign of the covenant for God's chosen people, um, bodily mutation or mutilation of any kind was prohibited, was taboo, and was looked down as a negative thing. 
You can read about it in Deuteronomy 14 or in 1 Kings or in Zechariah 13. And part of that reason was it was in stark contrast to the other religious traditions of the day, where people would beat themselves, where they would harm themselves, where they would do things to themselves. Jesus or God wanted his people to be set apart. And in stark contrast to the Greek Platonism that was in that day, which thought that the body and the mind, or sorry, the body in the material world was bad and negative and something you wanted to escape from, and the spiritual and the mind was a positive thing. In scripture, we do not see that taught. We see taught that our bodies are also really important, that God created the creation good. And in fact, how we interact with one another, how we treat our bodies and how we treat other people's bodies is actually a direct manifestation of our spiritual reality. That if we really do love Jesus and are submitting our lives to him, it impacts how we care for other people. That we care for the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor and those that are in need. God wants us to care for them because he cares about our physical condition. Now that being said, um, this sh- the point here is that even though this isn't literal... Uh, What Jesus wants us to do, what he wants his disciples to do in this moment is to consider the things in their life, um, consider the things in your life that lead us to sin, right? Do we take, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, and this passage is primarily to followers of Jesus this morning, do we take it seriously and do we have any plan to do anything about the sin in our life? We should, want, uh, we should want to do something, and we should want to be able to do things that prevent us from experiencing God's kingdom. Or put another way, I think Jesus, could, you could say it this way, uh, that no action or desire is worth the kingdom of God. When Jesus says life here, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the life that God offers. And this is not just when you die and go to heaven and experience perfection there. This is also life in this world. Freedom from bondage and addiction and slavery to sin. That having mastery over that through the power of the Spirit in your life. What Jesus is saying here is that you can have life or you can have death. But there is not an in-between option. You can have life or you can have death. And by the words that Jesus is showing us here, uh, a middle ground, in other words, if we are not intentional, we will uh, sway, we will drift into the way of death unless we are intentional with what we do, how we live, what we consume, and the, the decisions that we make. That no action or desire is worth the kingdom of God. And if that's true, the question then becomes for us, for your, for you and for me, to ask ourselves this question, what needs to be cut off in your life? But if Jesus wants us to experience life, what is it in your life, what is it in my life that is stopping me, that is prohibiting me to experiencing that in its fullest capacity? Right, Because it would be wrong for us to read this and to, uh, I think, rightly think that he's not giving literal instructions here, and then to somewhat soften what Jesus is saying. Well, he's not literally saying, cut off your hands, so, you know, try not to sin, but it's not that big of a deal, right? What Jesus is saying is that sin and evil desires will actually kill you, will actually lead to death. And what often happens is that they kills you before you even realize it. See, I would be willing to bet if you look at the things in your life, whether maybe things that you struggled with in the past and through the power and the grace of God you've uh, been able to overcome, or the things in your life that are currently uh, recurring issues in your life, or addictions, or things that you can't stop, my guess is that it started a lot smaller. 
And if you could go back in time to where it began, you would do anything you could do to cut it off and to stop it from doing it and consuming you in the way that it is right now. And this is the encouragement to Jesus. What needs in your life needs to be cut off? Not some theoretical, all this sounds great, but what is stopping me from experiencing more of God's presence in my life? And not just what it is, the second question then leads us to answer is this, right? How are you going to do it? Not just what do I need to do, what do I need to cut off, but how am I actually going to do it? What restrictions, what boundaries do I need to put in place so that I can actually experience freedom? Who do I need to tell? Who do I need to confine in, right? Again, what things do I need to proactively put in place so that I can cut out sin from my life? Uh, I've shared before one of the things that I do to be proactive about this because I am just as much of a sinner as anyone else is I have another local pastor friend in town and we get together every two weeks to, to talk about things going on in our life. But then we have a series of questions that we ask each other because if we do not ask our, each other, then we know how easy it is to fall into them. We have questions about our marriage. We have questions about uh, sin and sexuality and did I look at anything intentionally? Did I see anything unintentionally that I lingered on? We have a list of questions that if we do not ask each other, we know that we very easily can drift into death and to be walking down a path that we do not want to be walking down. Wait, what does it look like for you to have that person, to have that group, to have something, the things in your life to help you uh, proactively cut out the things that are going to kill you? Right? This is why Jesus previously, previously says, if you were here at the end of Mark chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago, one of his well-known sayings where he talks about laying down your life and taking up the cross to follow him. And we're all like, yes, I want to do that. This is practically how you do it. By laying down your desires, your pride, your selfishness to honor God and to elevate other people in your life. If you actually want to lay down your life and pick up your cross, Jesus is telling you how to do it. That you kill the sinful desires in your life. Now, here's the deal, right? Again, this sounds maybe theoretical, but for a second, I want to make this as practical as possible so that we can actually walk away uh, maybe implementing what Jesus is saying here. Um, how do you actually cut things off in your life? Uh, one of my favorite quotes comes from one of my favorite books I've ever read. Uh, it's Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's all about habit making and, and breaking bad habits and all that sort of thing. But in the book, he says this. Uh, it's stuck with me ever since I've read, uh, read it. He says, you don't rise to the level of your goals you fall to the levels of your systems. So here's what often happens, just on a hyper-practical note. Um, many times, for example, New Year's resolutions don't work, not because you don't have the ability to accomplish them, but because you have aspirations. You don't actually have a plan, a system, or a goal. When you say, I want to be healthier, that is an aspiration. That is not a plan. When you say, I want to be better with my money, that is not an aspiration. Uh, that is an aspiration. That is not a plan. Uh, when you say, I want to uh, have better relationships, that is an aspiration. That is not a plan. When you say, I want to stop looking at porn, that is an aspiration. That is not a plan. When you say, I want to stop gossiping and I want to believe the best about others, that is an aspiration. That is not a plan. When you say, I want to be more generous with my time or my resources, that is an aspiration. That is not a plan. If you do not have a plan, your goals will simply be aspirations that will never be hit. And so we can read this and we can say all day long, I want to honor Jesus better in this area of my life. But that is simply an aspiration, not a plan, unless you have a next step of how you are going to do it, right? How are you actually going to do it? Not just 
practically speaking. I want to stop looking at porn. That is a, that's an aspiration. That's a good aspiration, but that's not a plan. I'm going to talk to this person every week. We're going to follow up with how each other is doing. Uh, my marriage, I want to have a better marriage. I'm going to, every day I'm going to do one thing for my spouse to go out of my way to serve them. That is a plan. So whatever it is you're walking through, whatever the sin struggle you have in your life, if you would say you're a follower of Jesus, and if you would say it is causing you, it is leading you to death, it is leading you uh, to hinder your relationships with others or hinder your relationship with God, what is your plan, not your aspiration? I love what Sam Albury also says. He's a pastor and author. He puts it this way. It'll also be on the screen. He says, discipleship means asking. Discipleship is just apprenticeship to Jesus. It's following to Jesus. It's modeling your life after and towards Jesus. Here's how we do that. Here's what we ask. What does God love that I'm tempted to hate? And what does God hate that I'm tempted to love? What does God want me to let go that I'm tempted to grip onto? And what does God want me to grip onto that I'm tempted to let go? And here's how I know. Here's the thing. Many times we know the answer to that. Like oftentimes following Jesus is not about more biblical knowledge, although that can help. Oftentimes it's just doing and living out what you know to be true. If there's an area in your life that if you were honest with yourself before the Lord, does it honor God? If the answer is no, what does it look like to grab onto the things that he might have for you and honor him even if it is hard in the moment so that you can experience the life he offers. That's what he's saying here. So again, in these verses, verse 43 through 48, when he's talking about cutting off things and gouging out your eyes and doing things you don't want to know, do, I want to mention just one other thing happening here. Uh, Jesus shifts again in this passage um, from, again, from talking about endangering others to endangering himself. Uh, and, and then he also gives us the why. Like, here's why this matters. Again, because our choices are the kingdom of God, life and flourishing, or they are hell, where it says in verse 48, where the fire is not quenched. Now, let me explain to you what would have come into the minds of the peoples that Jesus was originally saying this to, because there is a graphic image that they would have come into their minds. So I'm going to explain it. This will take me like uh, two minutes. This is kind of technical, but if you can just track with me through it, you, you and I will be really able to understand uh, how this would have sat with Jesus' original audience. When Jesus mentions hell here, he's using the Greek word Gehenna, and Gehenna was actually a reference to a literal place called the Hinnom Valley. Now, the Hinnom Valley was a, was a valley on the south, southwestern part of Jerusalem with a long history of bad things happening in Israel. And so uh, Gehenna, what happened was basically, eventually, you know, the Israel's in, or uh, God's people are in Israel. Uh, God cle- takes out, clears out the people that were doing despicable, terrible, awful things and brings his people into there. And then God's people are in Israel, and then they start doing the same terrible, awful, despicable things that the other nations were doing. And so that's why they get brought into exile. And so one of the things that other nations were practicing at the time was human sacrifice. And then eventually, two Israelite kings come onto the throne, and they also start to practice human sacrifice. One sacrificing one of their own children. And they did it, did it in the Hinnom Valley. It was where these sacrifices to these pagan gods would take place. Uh, eventually, a God-honoring king named Josiah came into power. And when he came into power in Israel, what he did was he turned the Hinnom Valley, uh, what, they, what they called as Gehenna, they turned it into a, he turned it into a massive pile dump or trash dump. 
So for two reasons. One, to stop uh, the sacrifices that were happening there, but also to desecrate the area so that no one would ever again erect a, a, a worship to false gods there. And so what would happen was it became a massive place where waste was, was brought in, where trash was brought in. I mean, you can kind of think uh, maybe a modern day you know, trash area, that sort of thing. But it smelt bad. It was terrible. And there was always fires burning because that's how they got rid of the waste. So it's this massive stretch of just human waste, of trash, of destruction, of death, with fires happening all over the place, which were continual, so that when things were brought there, they would be burned up. It, would, it smelt terrible. It was not a place at all you wanted to be. And so Jesus here is referencing this place as a symbol of what it is like to be out of the presence of God, where he says in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He's saying that this Gehenna that's coming to your minds, this is what life is going to be like without God in the midst. Now, what's also interesting is that verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is also a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24. And in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, it is the last verse in, in, in Isaiah, which is one of the longest books in the Old Testament uh, from the prophet Isaiah. And the context of what is happening here, again, that would have been brought into their minds is the previous two chapters leading up to the last chapter in Isaiah is all about the salvation that God would redeem his people uh, for those that follow him. And then the new heavens and then the new earth that he will one day create, that all the, everyone who honors and trusts in the Lord will one day be able to to inhibit. So it's this positive thing. About, uh, Isaiah is encouraging people to trust in the Lord. And then he ends the last half of Isaiah 66 with the warnings and the consequences of rebelling and denying God, of what will ultimately happen if you reject God and you do not want to be in his presence. That those who reject him will be separated from him in a place that cannot be more opposite than his kingdom. And so Isaiah is also referencing Gehenna here in Isaiah 66 for, for, the, for the people in his time. It's saying God's kingdom is so much greater than you could ask or imagine. And his uh, destruction and being out of his presence is like a place like Gehenna, one of the worst places possible. And so all that being said, the reference to Gehenna from Jesus and the reference to Isaiah 66 is the strongest possible warning against not caring about how you live. What he's encouraging us, what he's saying here is do not let your unchecked desires lead you to forget God and his grace. Now, I understand that this is heavy, right? Particularly if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus and you begin to think of all the things that are in your life that are sinful, that do not honor God. But I also think it's worth pointing out why this matters. Here's why this matters. Because your sin, to be clear, does not disqualify you from God's grace but it can prohibit you from experiencing it. Your sin does not disqualify you from God's grace, but it can prohibit you from experiencing it. But what happens is that we can get so self-absorbed or so pleasure-driven uh, that you don't understand, that you don't see your need for God, that you become blind to your own problems, to your own desires, to your own life, and you miss out on what God might have for you. Or you might buy into the lie that I'm generally a good person, right? This is kind of our cultural narrative these days. And so that God will kind of let me in, right? I've done some bad stuff, but like there's a lot of bad stuff I haven't done. And so I'm pretty good. And so God will just let me in. I think it's just wor worth pointing out that nowhere in scripture is that hinted at at all. 
Right? Scripture is very clear that you and I have fallen short of God's perfect standard, and yet he sent Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. It's not about our effort and what we have done. It's about what Christ has done for us, about how we trusted and followed him, how we allowed him to redeem us, and are we a living, a living in a way that represents his kingdom and what he has done in our life. Right? Because here, Jesus here is clear. Jesus here is teaching um, not what you need to do to get love, God to love you. Let me be clear. He is teaching how you can experience it. Right? The gospel is that God took this first step towards us. And so we don't do to get. We do out of response of his goodness in our life. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to experience God's grace and his love and his abundance in his fullness, this is what it will look like. That he wants to give it to you. But if you are chasing after your own desires and your own wants, you will miss out. It kind of makes me think of, in some small ways, Finley, our daughter, uh, she's taking piano lessons, right? And during the week, every day, I sit down with her as she's practicing. And one of the things that she's really learning right now is learning where to put her fingers to play what notes. Because when you're starting out and you're playing really basic uh, songs on the piano, you can really play with whatever fingers you need to because it's like one note at a time. It really doesn't matter. And it's kind of unnatural. Like your hand's kind of like this. And so to make your fingers like this and like play, like it, it feels kind of weird. And so right now with her song, she's learning how to put her fingers in the right place. Now, we want her, and I want her to learn how to do that, not because I want her to learn the song that she's playing right in front of her. I want her to learn how to do that so that as she gets older and plays more complicated pieces, her fingers are actually in the right place so she can play multiple notes at a time. It's not about her getting the right fingers on that particular song so that she can do that song right. It's that, so that she can experience the freedom of learning how to play the piano in its fullness as she continues to get better. And I say all that to say this. I, I want to submit something to you. And before I say it, I want to tell you, I, I could be wrong on this, right? So I'm, there's, I'm not right on everything. There are times that I say things that are wrong. I'm sure that happens, hopefully less often than saying things that are right, right? Um, but, but for me, as I study the scriptures, I'm pretty convinced uh, that God takes sin seriously uh, for one of two reasons. One reason is that, is that he is holy and righteous and just. And so to us to enter into his presence, uh, something needs to be done with our sin and our brokenness. And of course, he abhors evil. All of that is true. Absolutely all of that is true. Um, but in my opinion, I believe the, the bigger reason that God is so much against sin, that Jesus is so harsh against it here, is not just that it dishonors God. I would submit to you that the bigger reason that he is so much so that he's so strongly against sin is because it causes us to miss out on life. All throughout scripture we see a God who deeply loves us. He doesn't need anything from us. He just wants us to experience his love and his grace and ultimately his kingdom. That's what he wants for us. And when we sin, we miss out on that. That it's not some angry God that's up there saying how dare you? It's a God with compassion and love saying, I have a better way for you. I love you. I created you. I know what's good for you. And if you would do this, you can experience more of my love and my presence in your life. Your sin does not disqualify you from God's love, grace, but it can prohibit you from experiencing it. And then he says this, the last two verses we'll read this morning, verse 49. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Now, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with everyone. Now, real quickly, there's some, 
difficulty and debate around what Jesus is actually saying in these two verses and also why Mark has included it. Um, the, the biggest question is how do fire and salt go together? Because they seem to be things that like you don't typically put together. Um, uh, really quickly, uh, the, the popular, one of the popular understandings of this is basically um, that the sacrifices that are inherent in our life and following Jesus um, purify us. Uh, and they allow us to be salt in the community. That's kind of like the traditional understanding of this, to be salt and light. Now, there are other, are other passages in Scripture that talk about uh, followers of Jesus being salt in the community. I would submit to you that's not what Jesus is saying here. Um, it seems to be, again, we don't know for sure, but it seems to be in this text, it is better to be understood in light of the temple sacrificial system where fire and salt both played a role. So in the sacrificial system for the Israelites, fire and salt both played a role. And so it would make sense that Jesus would talk about a scenario where they both go together. So for example, really quickly in Leviticus chapter one, uh, in Leviticus chapter one, sacrifices are supposed to be wholly consumed by fire. So when you bring your sacrifices to the priest, you're not supposed to take anything for yourself. You're supposed to give it all to the Lord. And then in Leviticus chapter two, uh, it talks about how salt must be included in that sacrifice. Part of the reason for that is because salt was a sign of the covenant for the Israelites. There's a lot of reasons for that that we won't get into here, but they are both important, fire and salt, and they're both included in sacrifices to God. And so that being said, it seems to be here that fire and salt are symbols of the trials and costs of following Jesus, that we must be totally consumed or it is worthless, right? When we strive to honor God, we then present ourselves as living sacrifices of fire and salt consuming us. This is why in Romans chapter 12, it says this, uh, Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, Romans 11 is all about God's grace and how he redeems us. So in response to that, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, consumed by fire, full of salt, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is your true worship worship. And so as I end this morning, I just want to end with this question as we consider and we think about what Jesus says in this text. Is what you are sacrificing your life for worth it? Whether you would say you're a follower of Jesus here this morning or you're not quite sure about this whole Jesus thing, what are you giving your life for? And is it worth it? Jesus, again, has a hard teaching here in this passage we read this morning but his point is how you live matters. What you do, the decisions you make, what you pursue, it matters. And you are either headed towards life or you are headed towards death. And the choice is yours. Right? And again, all of this is understood in light of the gospel that God sent Jesus because we are not the perfect living sacrifice, but he is who has never sinned, who knew no sin, to lay down his life for us so that anyone who would trust and be honest about their brokenness can experience the grace of God in their life and through the power of the Spirit, uh, through regular rhythms and practices of attuning our hearts and minds to the Lord, we then can experience more of his grace in our life and the good and the bad. When things are going the way we want or when life is hard and we are in full, we have, it is full of questions, that Jesus came to give us life. And hear me, absolutely in the life to come, the un unimaginable grace and riches and love and mercy and happiness and joy in his kingdom, but not just in the future, that God wants us to experience a taste of his love and his joy and his contentment and his peace here. You can, listen to me, you can live a better life. You can live a better life. 
but it is time to cut out the sin. It is time to be honest about our brokenness. And hear me, if you're here this morning and you're depressed and you're addicted and you feel like you're a screw-up, welcome. This is a place full of people who are following a Savior who is perfect because we are not. And if we are honest about our, our falling shorts, if we are honest about our sin, that is when freedom happens. Is your life, or is what you are sacrificing your life for worth it? That's the question that Jesus has for us this morning.